Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have your word which gives us such instruction about how we are to live before you. Lord, we pray that we may be dis- not be distracted this morning as we consider what you have said so long ago in your word. And we pray that we may indeed apply it to our lives. May we examine ourselves and consider where we stand in relationship to your son Jesus Christ and then to you, the Heavenly Father. Lord, we pray that you, we may be able to continue to cling to Jesus Christ and know that we have forgiveness of sins through him because we have considered your word and considered ourselves and found that we are not wanting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever come close to something but not far enough? I think of this every time that I'm trying to get some toy that has fallen down the back of some piece of furniture in the house. Someone will be distressed. A toy that is so valuable that it cannot be replaced by any other toy in the house is down the back of a couch, behind a wardrobe, and behind a dressing table. And there's no blame attributed to who put it behind there, but it is Daddy's job to try and get it out. And sometimes I put my hand, it can be under the bed as well, and you just don't want to have to pull the whole bed out or the piece of furniture. And you're putting your hand in and you can just get to it and your fingers just graze the toy and you've almost got it and you push, push, push and you just can't get any further. Your arm is up to its, uh, its, its width that it can't get under the bed any further and it's just not close enough. And so what do I have to do? I have to... Do the thing that I probably should have done in the first place. Pull the bed along, it's on wheels, or pull the piece of furniture out and get in and get that toy out so that happiness is restored to the life of one little individual. Have you experienced that? Being close to something but not close enough. That's what we're looking at this morning as we look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 6 which we started looking at last week. Basically verses 4 through to verse 12 have to be one of the most complex parts of the Bible and cause a lot of people great difficulty. And if you were here last week, you would have heard my overview of the section and how this section is a section of great warning for people to consider whether they really are saved. And I believe that there are two groups of people that are contained in these passages. Firstly, in verses 4 through to 6, it speaks of unbelievers, people who are not Christians, Greatly blessed, but not Christians. And then in verses 9 through to 12, we see people who are Christians. And so particularly, I think verse 9 shows that quite well. Verse 9, it says, Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. Who has salvation? Well, it has to be Christians. It has to be believers. And so if he is speaking confidently of better things in the reader's case, then he must have been speaking of things that aren't as good in the case of people who aren't believers previously. And that would be the group of people spoken about in verses 4 through to 6, where we read, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. As people read those verses, verses 4 through to 6, they often get quite fearful. 
that this is talking about Christians who can fall away and then they cannot come back to repentance. But if we understand that these verses are talking about unbelievers who come close but not close enough and then they fall away, then it's not something that should scare us if we are true believers that we can fall away. Because we have those other verses in Scripture, which I looked at last week, like in John 10, where it talks about us not being able to be snatched out of the Father's hand or snatched out of the Son's hand. They give us the assurance that if we are true believers, then we will persevere to the end, that God will protect us and look after us. And so these verses here are warnings for us to consider whether we are unbelievers who have come close, but not close enough. But this morning I want to continue looking at these verses 46 because some of you may not be convinced. I didn't have anyone now um, bow me up at the door last week and say, I fervently disagree with you, Joel. But nevertheless, verses 4 through to 6 I think need some unpacking themselves just to try and help us understand that this is a right interpretation of the passage because many people have had different interpretations to me as I outlined last week about what could be the right understanding of this passage, that these are really believers. That is spoken of in verses 4 to 6. And so I want to look at these descriptors of the people in verses 4, 5, and uh, uh, basically 4 and 5 today. I'll deal with uh, verse 6 next week. And see whether these descriptors really are things that could be said of unbelievers because they cause such concern for us as they seem like such great characteristics. If you want to be someone, wouldn't you want to be someone who is enlightened, who has tasted the heavenly gift, who has shared the Holy Spirit, who has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age? Aren't those things that we would say generally are of believers? And that's what I want to look at this morning. Can we say these are of believers and can we say they're of unbelievers? And so my first main point this morning is that unbelievers can be enlightened and fall away. If you look at my main points listed there on the back of the church bulletin, you can see how I'm going to deal with each of the descriptors. And the first is that unbelievers can be enlightened and fall away. And of course that is the descriptor that is given in verse 4. It says it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened. Now what does it mean to be enlightened? Can that be said of Christians, that we are enlightened people? Yes, to be enlightened means that our understanding of God has grown, that we are no longer in darkness about God, but we have light about him. And Jesus speaks about being the light of the world and how we are children of the light and should follow him. John 12 verse 46 says, Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are an enlightened being. You are someone who has received the light, who has accepted Jesus Christ, and so you are enlightened. But what about non-Christians? Could we say that they are enlightened as well? Could we say that some people have been enlightened about God? Well, yes. On one sense, everybody on the planet has been enlightened about God. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Everybody knows something about God. His invisible qualities have been revealed in creation to everybody. They have been enlightened that there is a God, that he exists and that he is powerful, but they suppress that truth and they do not want to accept it. And then there's people, that's sort of a, a, what we call general revelation of God that everybody has. But then there's people who receive special revelation about God as well and reject it, are enlightened about who God is 
and rejected as well. An example could be Balaam, the pagan prophet in the Old Testament, in Numbers. He spoke to God and God spoke to him. And then God used him to prophesy blessing upon God's people. He is someone who is certainly enlightened about God. You could not say he did not know that God existed. But was Balaam someone that was a believer in God and we should expect to meet him in heaven? Well, Second Peter 2 verse 15 tells us a judgment on Balaam. Peter says about great sinners, he says, They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Baor, who loved the wages of wickedness. Balaam is condemned in scripture, even though he knew God's voice and spoke with God and was used to bless the Israelites. God spoke through him a blessing upon the Israelites. Does not mean that Balaam was a true believer, that he renounced all false gods and followed the true God. And we see people in our churches that know quite a lot about God. They are enlightened about God much more than other people around the planet. But that does not make them believers. So non-Christians can be enlightened about the things of God, yet not be converted. That's the first descriptor. What about the next one? Well, that brings me to my second main point this morning. Unbelievers can taste the heavenly gift and fall away. Unbelievers can taste the heavenly gift and fall away. And we read about this heavenly gift in verse 4. It says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, what is this heavenly gift? Well, it's not very specific there. And lots of people have lots of different ideas as to what the heavenly gift could be. It could be Jesus. It could be, because he is a gift to us, certainly. Uh, It could be the Holy Spirit, because he is also described as a gift. It could be the gospel, because the gospel message is a gift that is given uh, to uh, people on this earth. It could just be a general descriptor of favor and blessing that is given by God. I think that's the best way to take it. The favours of God, the blessings of God, they're heavenly gifts. Everything that we receive from God, he is the heavenly Father, he is in heaven. Everything that we receive from heaven is indeed a gift, a good thing that God has given us. And so I think this is a vague description of the blessings of God. It's meant to be a sort of catch-all. It's not meaning to be a specific thing in itself. And so we can ask if that is what the heavenly gift is. Well, then, do Christians experience the favour of God? Yes, absolutely. We experience his favour all the time. What about unbelievers? Do they experience the favour of God? Well, yes. As I said last week, and I think the passage tells us that, it gives us an illustration, that things just like rain and sunshine, food on our tables, blessings of other people around us, they're all gifts from God. And they are experienced by unbelievers as well as believers. And verses 7 and 8 talks about that. And it says, Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. Gives a farming illustration there to show that people indiscriminately receive the favour of God. And so just because it says here that these people in verses 4 and 5 have tasted the heavenly gift doesn't mean that they're necessarily saved. They've simply experienced the favour of God. What about the next descriptor? Well, my third main point is unbelievers can share in the Holy Spirit and fall away. The third thing we see is that these people have shared in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, this is one of the most challenging uh, descriptors here for people to look at and think that is describing an unbeliever. I was speaking to another minister this uh, just past week, and he raised this, this uh, passage with me. He had seen that I'd preached on it. He'd seen it on Facebook surprisingly. Uh, so there you go. Facebook page Des Moines Baptist is out there and other ministers are taking note. Uh, this minister had seen it on Facebook and said he was interested as to what I had to say. And when he had spoken on this passage to other people at his church, this had been the problem part, was this sharing in the Holy Spirit, because this sounds like a Christian. What else would you say about a Christian than that they've been shared in the Holy Spirit? So do Christians experience sharing in the Holy Spirit? Yes, of course. We understand that the Spirit comes into a Christian's life and regenerates them, that they, the Spirit is responsible for converting that person. If you're a Christian, then you must have shared in the Holy Spirit because otherwise you're not a Christian at all. You can't say you're a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. You can't be converted without the Holy Spirit. We can't be regenerated without the Holy Spirit working upon your heart and changing you and then coming and living inside you. But what about non-Christians? Can they share in the Holy Spirit? Well, I think the answer is yes. We've got to remember that the Holy Spirit does a lot more than simply regenerate people. He does empower people for certain periods of time, give them gifts for a particular work of God, and then he withdraws from people as well. And those people have legitimately shared in the Holy Spirit, but they aren't regenerate. And an example is, of course, King Saul, which we just had a passage read from 1 Samuel for us. He was someone who the Holy Spirit came upon, and he did mighty acts, particularly uh, acts of uh, in battle, but also he prophesied as he had the Holy Spirit upon him. But then what happened? The Holy Spirit left him. That passage that we just had read for us. It speaks about the fact that the Holy Spirit had departed from Saul. So Saul no longer had the Holy Spirit. Would you say that a good way, one way you could describe King Saul is that he was a sharer in the Holy Spirit? Yes. He had shared in the Holy Spirit at one point, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he continues to share in the Holy Spirit. And we see the rest of Saul's life gives strong evidence that he just keeps going down in a downward spiral and he's not a true believer in God at all. And so I think we can say that certain people have shared in the Holy Spirit. God has blessed them with his Holy Spirit for a certain particular function, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they've experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in different ways. His regeneration work is just one of the works that he does. And we shouldn't say just because someone has shared in the Holy Spirit that they've shared in his regenerating work. And so this could be said of unbelievers here too, this descriptor that they've shared in the Holy Spirit could be describing non-Christians as well. So that's the first three. Number four, what's the fourth descriptor? Well, that's my fourth main point this morning. Unbelievers can taste the goodness of the word of God and fall away. Unbelievers can taste the goodness of the word of God and fall away. Can Christians taste the goodness of the word of God? As described here in verse 5, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Would that be a description of a Christian? Yes. Christians do taste the goodness of the word of God. Read Psalm 119 and tell me that that believer who wrote that psalm 
did not taste the goodness of the word of God. Now, he loves the word of God. Psalm 119 is one of the best texts in the Bible to exalt God's word. If you want to read a psalm, read that one. It takes you a while. It's like a whole bunch of psalms put together. But it is a wonderful psalm to show how we should delight in God's word if we are a believer. But can non-Christians also delight, taste the goodness of the word of God? Yes, people can hold up God's word and taste the goodness of it and say, yes, the word of God is indeed a good book. I know many non-Christians who will exalt the word of God, who will say, yes, yes, there are many good things to be contained in there. And they will actually encourage other non-Christians. It's amazing. I've heard a non-Christian tell other non-Christians to read the Bible. They'll say it's worth reading. They've actually tasted something good in there and they recommend it to others. And we see people doing that even in the scriptures. Herod's an example of that. King Herod, he locks John up. But he likes John. And we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, it says, When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. But he liked to listen to him. Is Herod converted? No, he chops off John's head. Gives clear evidence that he's not converted by the way that he lives. You can't say he liked listening to John, and so he's clearly converted, when at the same time he chops John's head off. He's not particularly happy about doing it, but he doesn't stop it. He's sort of manipulated into doing it, but he still is responsible for that action. You can't say someone likes someone, but they're also willing to kill the person, and so that means that, oh, really, they did like that person. No, he liked to hear John speak, and John would have exalted God and proclaimed the scriptures to Herod, and Herod liked to listen to it. He tasted the goodness of the word of God, but he wasn't a believer. And we see that by his actions. So we could say that this is a description of unbelievers as well. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. What about the next one, the last one, the fifth and final one? Well, that brings me to my fifth main point. Unbelievers can taste the power of the coming age and fall away. Unbelievers can taste the power of the coming age and fall away. That's the description that's given in verse 5. These people who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Now, what are these powers of the coming age? Well, powers in the New Testament, the Greek word, is just another word that's used for miracles. Now, do Christians use miracles? Do Christians taste miracles? Do they experience miracles? Yes. We see again and again in the scriptures people being healed, people prophesying. They experience these wonders, these miracles of the coming age again and again. So you could say this is a description of Christians, certainly, that these are people who have tasted the powers of the coming age. But the question is, could you also say this of unbelievers? Could you say that unbelievers have tasted the powers of the coming age? Do non-Christians experience miracles as well? Yes, unbelievers do experience miracles. They do taste those miracles. They do witness them. They can actually experience them themselves in the sense that uh, they're done to them, that someone heals them, that someone does some great event in front of them, and yet they still reject God. Or they can even do things that are great miracles themselves by God's power and still not believe believers either. Matthew seven twenty two. 
verse and 23, where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? On Judgment Day, there are going to be people who say to God, I prophesied in your name. I drove out demons in your name. And I performed many miracles. And then what will Jesus say to them? Then I will tell them plainly, he says in verse 23, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, oh no, you didn't drive out demons. You didn't prophesy. You didn't do miracles. You're a liar. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that the miracles didn't happen. What he's saying is that I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are people who did great things, but they never actually believed in Jesus themselves. And so I think it's once we look at these descriptors here carefully, we can see that, yes, they can be said of, of believers, of Christians, definitely. But they can also be said of unbelievers. That the descriptions in themselves don't necessarily point to the fact that these are believers. And the surrounding context helps us understand that the author is speaking about unbelievers here and then believers next. Unbelievers who are greatly blessed, yes. Much more blessed than many other unbelievers. But nevertheless, unbelievers. And I think even as we don't just look at the descriptors themselves as um, the, the different gifts that are given there, but the way that they're described that these people experience these things also gives us a hint that these are unbelievers as well. Interestingly, of these five things, three of them use the word taste to, to, uh, that these people experience them by tasting do you see that there? In verse 4 it says, It is impossible for those who have been once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted the heavenly gift. Who have shared in the Holy Spirit. Who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. They've tasted the heavenly gift and they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and they've tasted miracles. Now why is that interesting? Well the word taste doesn't mean wholesale adoption, that you've actually eaten something up. The same Greek word used here is used for Jesus tasting at the cross the wine that they offer him. He tastes the wine, but he refuses to drink it. Would you say Jesus drank wine at the cross? No, he tasted it and rejected it. And that's what can be said of these people here. They are tasting it, but that doesn't mean they've taken it on board. It's like those wonderful people that I love to see in the supermarkets where they have the free samples there for you and you get a taste of it, particularly some sort of sauce and sometimes they'll have a butcher there and he's actually frying meat there and you can dip the sausage into the sauce and you can have a taste of it. I'm sorry to say for all those marketing gurus that have done that is I have never bought a single product even though I've tasted many of the products that have been put forward at supermarkets and in uh, shopping centres for me to taste. Could you say that I've taken on board their products? No, I haven't bought them. I'm happy to taste. 
But I'm not going to spend my money to buy their product necessarily because I've tasted it. And yes, it has been yummy, but you know, I've got other... Uh, well, I don't really do the grocery shopping, so I probably shouldn't be the one that's actually tasting the things. But they willingly let me taste. And you could never say that I've actually adopted what they are putting out there for me to have. And it's the same of these people. They have tasted the things of Christianity, but that means that they haven't taken them on board. They haven't drunk them in. They haven't drunk the heavenly gift in, the favours. They haven't taken the goodness of the word of God into them and the powers of the coming age. They haven't adopted them as that is what I'm all about, is Christianity. They've simply tasted it, had a free sample of Christianity. And interestingly, the, one of the, that's three of the five descriptors. The, one of the other ones, the one in reference to the Holy Spirit, uses the word sharing. Verse 4, it says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. And I think that word shared is chosen deliberately by the author as well to show that the person hasn't taken on Christianity wholesale either. Because that word share can just mean associate. Like you have an association with other people. You don't necessarily adopt them into your family and take them to be one of your close friends. They're an associate. I know some of you in your workplaces, you have many associates. You would say, yes, I know that person. And they're an associate. But would you say they're your friend? Do you hang out with them on the weekends? Do you invite them over to your house? Would you call them brother or sister? They're an associate. And that's what I think is God and the author is getting at here with, in reference to the Holy Spirit. They associate with the Holy Spirit. They don't adopt the Holy Spirit into their lives. They don't want the Holy Spirit to come and live within, in them, to reside in them. They want to associate with the Holy Spirit for a time, but then they move on. And so it's interesting, of the five descriptors there, we have verbs used for four of them that show a loose attachment to those five things, uh, to those four things as well. And so I think the author's point is quite clear that many non-Christians can come really close to Christianity without actually being saved. But close is not close enough. It's like me with that toy under the bed. Is it good enough for the child that I'm trying to get that toy out for that I can touch it just lightly with my fingertips? I can say to the child, I can almost get it. Please stop crying. That's not good enough. Almost is not good enough for the child. I have to get it out if they're going to be happy. I have to get hold of it and bring it out. Close is not close enough. You have to actually get it. And it's the same with Christianity. You can come very close to Christianity, but not actually get it. And an example of people doing this, of coming very close to God, and not getting God, not having him, accepting him, is of course the Israelites in the desert, which is one of the main illustrations that this author of Hebrews uses again and again because he's speaking to Jews 
who are thinking of going back, who are thinking of leaving and rejecting Jesus. And if we consider the Israelites in the desert and these five descriptors of them, could it not be said of them? And yet many of them perished in the desert and did not combine what they saw with faith as the author has shown us in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He condemns them again and again. Could we say these things of those people? Yes. Were the Israelites in the desert enlightened about God? Yes, they knew him as a group, probably better than any other group in history, in the sense that they'd seen so many mighty acts of God and seen quite clearly that he's there. They'd seen his rumbling at the top of a mountain. They'd heard his voice talking to Moses. They hadn't necessarily heard exactly what he was saying, but they had seen these wonderful things about God. They knew God existed. Yet they rejected him. They made a golden calf. What about tasted heavenly gifts? Yes. Clear example would be manna coming down from heaven. And that's probably what the author might be getting at by saying that, the heavenly gift, manna. And that's what actually led a lot of uh, early uh, church fathers to consider that in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, where it says that it's tasted the heavenly gift, they actually said this was communion. That they're tasting the bread and the, the wine. And so these people had had communion. And they were then, I think they back-travelled a bit to verse 4, uh, in the next in the one descriptive in that in verse 4 of enlightened and said that's baptism. Because, of course, baptism comes before communion. And so here we've got both. We've got baptism and communion. But I don't think that's necessarily true. But I do think the author, when he says taste of the heavenly gift, he could well in mind have manna that these people in the desert, they experienced heavenly gifts every day. It fell on the ground and they picked it up and they ate it. And what about sharing in the Holy Spirit? Yes, the, the people in the desert, they shared in the Holy Spirit. They saw the Holy Spirit's power all the time and people actually had the Holy Spirit come on them. The, the elders, they had Holy Spirit come on them and they prophesied. And so, of course, then we have to say that they pay, tasted the powers of the coming age. They saw great miracles, all kinds of miracles, all the time. Water coming from rocks. Whole bodies of water being made sweet so you can actually drink it. Quail just ascending again and again. Shoes that didn't wear out. Wouldn't Nike and Adidas love to have those on their market? Of course, you put yourself out of business if you sell those for long enough. Shoes that don't wear out. They tasted the powers of the coming age. What about the goodness of the word of God? Yes, they had the word of God given to them. And they saw the goodness in it. But then what did they do? They did not combine all that they saw with faith. And they did not go into the promised land. They were kept out because they weren't believers. They fell in the desert. They did not want to go in. When it came to the crunch and they were at the edge of the promised land and they were told to go in, they balked and they stopped. Even though they had had so many blessings of God and knew so much about him, they should have said, this is going to be a piece of cake going in there. And we've seen what God's been able to do to others, particularly due to the Egyptians. But they balked and they did not go in. And it's the same today. There are people who experience many blessings of Christianity. But when it comes to the crunch... They don't go in. They don't have the elementaries down pat. Those things that are given to us in the earlier verses in chapter 6. The basics. 
Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Therefore let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. They don't repent and they don't believe. So we have to examine ourselves this morning. This passage is scary for us to hear because it shows us that we can come very close and not be close enough. And so we need to examine our hearts and see if we have experienced great things of God. We've tasted many things, but are we willing to drink them in? And are we willing to repent of our sins and trust that Jesus Christ died for us? Or are we going to simply come along to church, hear the goodness of the word of God, experience some miracles, share in the Holy Spirit, be enlightened, but not actually be saved. This is something that is serious for us to examine. Every one of us, this week, myself included, as a pastor of church, that does not make me exempt. I have to look at myself and say, do I see myself in verses 4 to 6 and I'm actually unsaved? Or am I someone who has come before God in repentance and trusted that Jesus Christ died for me and so then those other passages in Scripture apply to me where I cannot be snatched out of God's hand. And so I encourage you to do that. Look at yourself. Look at whether, from all appearances, you look like a Christian, but you're not. And then I encourage you, if you find yourself wanting, put your trust in Jesus Christ now. Don't continue to taste these things. Drink them in. Trust in Christ. Let us come before our God now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that we may be people who are enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. But we've done much more than that as well, that we've drunk in these things and we have turned from our sins in repentance and that we have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, and that we have the things that accompany salvation. Lord, we pray that there is no one in this room this morning who is simply willing to dabble in the things of Christianity and not drink them in. We pray that they may see the good things of Christianity and embrace them for the rest of their lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.